Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College from the studios of KSPC. I'm Patty Bell. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Lisa Abrams, the Peter W. Stanley Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science and Coordinator of Cognitive Science here at Pomona College. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, so you're not only a professor, you're also an alumna, uh, class of 91. Um, tell us about your time here as a student. When I look back, it all seems a bit like a blur, <laughs> but um, it was so transformative for me being at Pomona because I came from a small town in New Jersey, um, although I moved to New Mexico in high school. But anyway, I came from a small town mostly, and it had a it was very homogeneous, so I hadn't been exposed to a lot of diversity. I didn't come from a family that traveled a lot. And so coming here and seeing such an incredibly diverse set of students from all over the world and, and with such different backgrounds, it was really enlightening for me, mm -hmm. I think, in broadening my perspective um, about just life in general, about myself. And it made me be a better student being in this environment. And so when I came to Pomona, I think I was really nervous about being the least intelligent person in the room because you're surrounded by so many intelligent people. Um, but that, again, just motivated me to, to work harder and to want to contribute and to be a participant in classes, um, although I was really quiet. So it took the right professors to, to drag that out of me. Um, but ultimately, I was really fortunate to have these incredible faculty who helped me find what I was passionate about and then pursue that. Let's talk about those pursuits. What did you have in mind something that you wanted to study? Did that change? Did that materialize? <laughs> Tell us about that. I thought I knew what I was going to study. <laughs> um, famous last words. Yeah, exactly. Although it's such a good example for students or now. Or famous first words. Or famous first words. <laughs> so I thought I wanted to study computer science. I had been fascinated with computers, which were becoming bigger. I mean, they, they weren't in all the homes at this point, mm -hmm. or let alone on your phones and watches, but I had begged for a computer in the mid-80s and um, finally got my parents to get one. And I just loved the, the discovery and problem solving of what a computer could do in simulating human behavior. I didn't really conceptualize it that way. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is fun. I can program games. But um, when I came to Pomona, I thought, well, yeah, I want to study computer science, although they didn't have a computer science major at that point. And so they ran it through the math department where you could do a specialization. Mm -hmm. And I liked math. So I thought, yeah, sure, I'll take Calc 3 and linear algebra and differential equations and kill myself in the process. But I'm going along taking all those things. And then finally, I take the first computer class and I don't love it. Mm. <laughs> and so I have this crisis now. What am I going to do with my life? <laughs> um, because that's what I'd been planning right. for yeah. years. And then mm -hmm. um, realizing, well, hmm, what do I do now? So a lot of my friends were double majoring at the time, and I didn't really have an obvious next major. So I thought, well, I'll just start taking some classes, see how that goes. And uh, I took, it was the beginning of my junior year, so I was feeling the panic then too of, uh-oh, here I am a junior and I still don't know what I'm doing. And so I took Psych 162, which was uh, called Memory and Learning with uh, Lab then. And uh, the professor, Debbie Burke, um, She's a great professor, but also the material really just struck me. I, I didn't know psychology could be this. Mm -hmm. I didn't know psychology could be hypothesis testing and discovery mm -hmm. and all these cool things about the mind and the brain. And so um, a, fun si a fun aside to this story is, so 
for the first exam for that class, it was on the same day I had an exam in a combinatorics class. Mm. So I pulled an all-nighter, stayed mm -hmm. up trying to study for both of the exams, and then the next day took the exams and realized, well, that wasn't a great idea. <laughs> mm. So a week later, when uh, she gave the exam back, I see it so clearly. I was walking up the steps of Mason Hall, and she's standing in that archway. And uh, I, she says, oh, nice exam, Lisa. And I'm thinking, wow, she's being sarcastic. <laughs> wow, that's not surprising. Hmm. So I get into class, and she gives the exams back. And I, I got a B plus, which I am ecstatic about. Mm -hmm. um, but I learned two really important things from getting that exam back. One was don't ever pull another all-nighter again, <laughs> because apparently sleep is important for consolidating your memory of things oh, you wow. learn. Who knew? Yeah. Um, and then the second thing I learned was, well, I thought, well, I'm thrilled with the B plus, but why would she say nice exam? Like, clearly, that's not the best exam in the mm -hmm. class. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, what I see is I missed all the sleep-deprived kinds of questions, <laughs> like the really simple, easy, <laughs> straightforward things. But I got all the conceptually challenging, tough huh. questions. And so... I actually keep that exam in my office still as a reminder now that I'm on the faculty side to try to help students, you know, inspire them to find what they're passionate about, but also to maybe help them uncover some hidden talents they might not know about. Wow. So <laughs> now you teach that same class. Right. right? Yes, I'm teaching so, it this semester. <laughs> so how has how's the class evolved uh, between then and now? And what's it like to come full circle like that? <laughs> well, one big change is um, Psych has made it a three-hour lab instead of a one-hour lab, what it used hmm. to be. So that's it's an interesting adjustment. I, I never had taught a lab class before, but then now I have to fill my, you know, three hours of lecture plus my three hours of lab. Um, but the technology has changed so much in terms of what you can do in a lab environment. Mm -hmm. So back when I took the course, we were doing experiments basically with, you know, paper and pencil right. <laughs> for the most part. And now we can actually teach students in the lab um, um, a software. They can then program experiments and we can analyze data and do things really in real time in a way that I think was a lot harder mm -hmm. back then. Um, so I'm loving it. I mean, I love the creativity that you can do in this environment to get them to come up with hypotheses and then figure out ways to test them. And they don't need a whole lot of background to do that. That's your challenge is how do you make this accessible to a, a mm -hmm. range of ability of student in terms of first year students and seniors. That's the range of students I have in the class. Yeah. So it's, again, it feels surreal being back full circle <laughs> teaching the class that started it all for me. <laughs> um, but I, I couldn't be happier. I mean, I'm the happiest I think I've ever been in my career, but I also think I'm the best professor I've ever been in my mm. career. And having that happen 22 years in, it's just an incredible feeling. Talk to us a little bit about your career. You've been at a large public university prior to Pomona, and you, you went to Pomona, then went to a, a large university, and now are back at a liberal arts college. Tell us a little bit about that experience, those experiences. Yeah, and it was a surprise to everybody when I went to the University of Florida. So all everyone who knew me went, why are you? Why would you go there? You, you should have gone to a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was always the kind of place you envisioned yourself. And it was. But when I interviewed at Florida, um, the piece I hadn't really thought through in my career was working with graduate students. And so when I went there and met with a number of graduate students, um, it just struck me as an opportunity I hadn't really explored. And mm -hmm. that I thought it seemed like the kind of place where I could have that piece, but also work with undergraduates in my lab and right. 
it seemed like the kind of place where I could have an impact in teaching. I mean, even at a big place, you can sometimes have choices of things that you do in the class that could help students. So yeah, so I went there, I think, to everyone's surprise, but uh, no regrets. I had a lot of really good experiences in that environment. Um, like I said, working with graduate students, um, I still collaborate with the student who was my first graduate student. Oh, wow. She's now chair of a psychology department at a liberal arts college, and we continue to collaborate and research. So in that sense, I still was able to mentor some really wonderful undergrads who went on successfully to do a lot of great things. Mm -hmm. I didn't love the teaching 150 students in a class. Mm -hmm. It sort of feels like you're doing an acting performance. Uh -huh. You know, you're standing in front of this huge crowd. Um, that for me wasn't what teaching was about. I missed the kind of experiences I had at Pomona with these small group interactions in class, getting to know your professors. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, I didn't love that piece, but I feel like my research program was really able to evolve in a large institution because there was resources and time devoted for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really thinking about a change. I mean, I'd been there 20 years. Mm -hmm. No one thinks you're going anywhere after that. Mm -hmm. And I'd been chair of my department um, for the three years then up to that point and feeling kind of burned out <laughs> from that experience, <clears throat> in part because I'd gotten further and further away from the things that drew me to this career in the first place. I spent very little time with students. I had very little time for my research. I was hardly teaching. And I just started thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> How did I get into the part of this career that isn't what I love doing. And so um, coincidentally at this time, um, Debbie was going to be retiring. And so she had mentioned at a conference to me that, oh, they're going to be advertising my position. You should apply. And I thought, I even said to her, you're crazy. I wouldn't be leaving. I'm not leaving you know, Florida after 20 years. He's going to pick up a life. And, you know, I said, I got too much junk. How would I possibly clean it all out? You know, my office, my house. And so... Um, Anyway, she encouraged me and I thought about it for a long time. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, applying doesn't hurt commit you to mm -hmm. anything. It's a good opportunity to actually refresh my materials to sort of think through what is my research program and how has it evolved? What is my teaching philosophy these days? And then the really neat piece was Pomona requires a diversity statement, which that was a brand new concept at that time. Never wrote one of those. So that was a great exercise. So then it became a, okay, well, I got a Skype interview. That doesn't mean anything. Okay, well, I have an in-person interview. That doesn't mean anything. I mean, I really, I think, kept saying, well, none of these things guarantees anything. And then when the dean calls with an offer, I think, uh-oh, now it really <laughs> is something. Something. I have to, I mean, but even then I kept saying, well, it'd have to be just this incredible opportunity that I couldn't pass up. <laughs> <laughs> so. and that's what it became and here famous i am yeah famous last words and so then yeah i, I still kind of go what happened <laughs> what <laughs> uh, let's talk about your relationship with debbie sure uh, you your your um moment of truth in in college happened in her class um and then you did research with her right uh, can yeah. you tell us about that and and then your research areas mesh, right? Yeah. So can you talk to us about about the effect she's had on you and starting sure. all the way back with, with working with her as a student? Sure. So in that class after the B+, plus, um, it motivated me. I worked hard and I did well in the, the rest of the course. And she invited me to come do research in her lab. And I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, I think we hear that term research, but I didn't really understand what does that entail. But I'm thinking, yeah, this seems like a great opportunity. Why not try it? And so um, she served as a mentor for me then doing research in her lab. And then she went on to be my senior thesis advisor because mm -hmm. all psychology majors did a thesis. And um, 
I loved it. I loved everything that it brought together. So many of the skills, again, in retrospect, so many things I loved, it found a way to put together in one place. So the computer, the programming piece, mm -hmm. the problem solving piece, the <laughs> even math piece, you know, via the statistics, writing. So it was so many of those things that I didn't know cohered around <laughs> that theme of research. And so once I started doing it, um, I loved all that sort of integration of the things I enjoyed doing. But then she also introduced me to the topic of healthy aging, which is something I had never given any thought to. But in the context of doing research with her, I realized how much I loved that too and how much I wanted that to be a part of my long-term research program. In part, I think, because A, we're all aging. So <laughs> having that understanding is useful not only for current people, but for all of us throughout our lives. And then I also mm -hmm. had uh, older parents. So my mom had me at 42. So I was already seeing when I started college, they were in their 60s. Yeah. And so it just from a personal standpoint made me think, well, gosh, I want to have a better understanding cognitively, you know, what's normal, what's not normal, and what can we do about it, if anything. And so she's been a lifelong mentor for me. Um, so she then said, well, you should go to graduate school and get a PhD. And you should go work with my husband at UCLA in psycholinguistics, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> you should apply for a, a National Science Foundation graduate fellowship. I did, and I got one. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> she said, you know, I mean, so I just, I'm being facetious. But the point was she, she made me aware of opportunities mm -hmm. of what I could do with these interests in this major in a way that I just had no idea, not knowing mm -hmm. about the discipline and, and what research meant. And so then when I went to graduate school, I still didn't completely really have a clear idea where my future would be. And then as a graduate student, I had this incredible opportunity to come back to Pomona and teach psychological statistics because mm -hmm. Pat Smiley went on maternity leave. Mm -hmm. And so for two semesters, I commuted from LA. I was at UCLA, so I commuted back to Pomona and, and taught this class and realized, wow, I love research, but I also throughout teaching. my life have always loved teaching. I was always tutoring. So here at Pomona, I served as a math tutor. I mean, there's just so many indicators, but you just can't put them all together, mm -hmm. I think, until you have hindsight. Mm -hmm. And so then, um, yeah, so then when I got out of graduate school and I applied for all 67 academic jobs, I mean, it was a really, it was a plethora of jobs, <laughs> uh, which is really lucky for me, but I was so worried about not getting a job that mm -hmm. I had to apply everywhere and everything. And she was supportive. <laughs> Throughout that process and then into my career, she gave me advice for getting tenure. I think she might have even written me a letter, a, an external letter for writing mm -hmm. for tenure. So she's just been a lifelong mentor. And then now as I start in this position, she was invaluable in helping me get up to speed of what is cognitive science. We didn't have that as a major when I was a student. Mm -hmm. What is that? What does it mean to be the coordinator of the major? Um, and so I've really been just building on hopefully the legacy she started here. And that's what I hope to do is leave it in a better place than she started it, which was also great. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about cognitive science. So you just mentioned it because now you're the coordinator of this section. What does that entail and how, is it, how does it intersect or, or, um, with psychology and psycho psychological science, I should say? Well, and it's interesting because when I applied for the position, I sort of looked up and said, I better really understand what cognitive science is now that I'm applying for this position. <laughs> and in looking at a lot of different programs across the country, um, they call themselves cognitive science, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. They're really, I would say, cognitive psychology at the core and then have a few extra courses. But true mm -hmm. cognitive science is interdisciplinary mm -hmm. because it draws on understanding the mind, not just from psychology, but from philosophy, 
from a computer science perspective, if you think about artificial intelligence and how that helps us think about the mind, mm -hmm. from linguistics, so understanding the structural issues underlying language and how that helps us understand the mind. Um, neuroscience plays a role in there. Anthropology can play a role in there, although that's not been explored as well as it could. And so for me, I then felt a, a need to learn mm -hmm. about how all those disciplines contribute yeah. um, to cognitive science and to be able to, when I teach, to bring that interdisciplinary perspective to my classes. And so I've really worked on that. It was a challenge because I knew nothing about the philosophy of the mind. And so that meant doing mm -hmm. some reading and get caught up to speed. Um, but I think that's really important to represent the interdisciplinarity because honestly, in, as coordinator, in talking with students who are interested in the major, that's what they're really drawn to. When I ask, why are you interested in cognitive science? So many, that's what they say. I really like the interdisciplinary aspect and the different courses I can take. Mm -hmm. And just, I'm interested in a lot of different things. And so mm -hmm. it's a major that encourages me and allows me to explore those things. And so as coordinator, my role, I see it, is advising potential majors who are interested. Um, I work with students who want to study abroad to figure out, are there potential courses you can take abroad that might help you with this major. Mm -hmm. um, I have tried to make students more aware of potential internships and research opportunities. So I started a listserv in the department so mm -hmm. that now I can regularly communicate about um, these kinds of options that students might be interested in pursuing. And um, there's just tons of other paperwork aspects of coordinating <laughs> a major that involves signing a lot of forms and mm -hmm. those kind of things. But mm -hmm. it's, it's really the student piece and helping students that for me I love. Let's uh, move to your research. Um, the um, you focus on real-world retrieval problems, uh, as did Debbie. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the work you've done and the work you're doing now? Sure. Um, and I would say that funny, the things I'm studying actually weren't the things I studied with Debbie. Yeah. So how yeah. it evolved, I think, is just one of the things of core interests, and then it just led me in some of the similar directions. Yeah. So early in my career, I was studying um, written errors. So things like spelling errors, mm. um, factors that contribute to why we make those kinds of written errors. And then also in that context, I was interested in something um, we call homophone substitution errors, which you probably see a lot in email where somebody uses the wrong here. So H-E-R-E -E instead of H-E-A-R. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And yep. so I was interested in why do we make those kinds of mistakes when we know the difference? Like we know the difference between the words, but we, we mm -hmm. make those errors. And so then I moved into more spoken errors. And my first graduate student, she got interested in wanting to study the tip of the tongue state. And Debbie, of course, you know, <laughs> had done that for many years, was well known. I hadn't done that with her. Mm -hmm. But my student said, well, we'd read some articles in class. And I said, sure, we can do that. And so then I started studying um, what are the different factors that go into why we have tip of the tongues. Um, and I've in more recent years, I've been exploring more, instead of psycholinguistic psycholinguistic factors, I've been exploring um, other factors such as anxiety and emotional arousal, because people subjectively say that they'll have those word finding problems when you're under a stressful Stress. situation. Mm -hmm. So students say it all the time in class. Mm -hmm. Oh, I blanked. What mm -hmm. was that word? Mm -hmm. um, older adults say it in a public uh, speaking setting or in a conversational setting like a party that sometimes they could introduce a spouse and can't remember their name. And so it made me think there has to be some ways to try to investigate those sort of affective factors and what role they're having. So in recent years, I've been doing some of that. I've also moved um, in, into some directions of studying errors in comprehension or reading. Mm 
So in recent years, I've ex explored something called the Moses illusion. And um, do you know what that is? No. So no. I'll give you an I'd example. Like sure, I'll give you an example. So you ask people questions like, how many animals of each type did Moses take on the ark? And what do people say? They say two. <laughs> and you're looking at you're me like, going. Uh, <laughs> wait, is, is there a trick? Right. I mean, that's what you're looking yeah, at me right. going. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. that seems obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Moses didn't no, take animals on the ark. It was Moses, of course. It was Noah. Noah. <laughs> okay. And so that's called the Moses illusion. And this yeah. happens quite often where people um, think or they don't, they initially, the question was, why are people having that? And initially some thought was, well, you're just sort of shallowly processing that that name and skipping over it potentially. Um, mine and other research has suggested actually that's not what's going on. Um, that in fact, it's that you get a convergence of, of excitation on Noah because of the shared meaning that Noah and Moses have. They're both biblical figures. Mm -hmm. They both did something involving water <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And then my research has found that actually visual similarity plays a role. They're both mm -hmm. sort of bearded white old men. Mm -hmm. yep. And we yeah. found that that actually compounds or exacerbates the illusion even more so when you have two people in these questions that are visually similar to each yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, if you'd said Lincoln, I think we probably would have picked up on it a like, lot wait, sooner than... What? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so just I enjoy, again, susceptibility to these sort of real world kinds of illusions and things that happen. Talk to us about your methods. How do you go about researching these topics? Because it it, it has to be super in the interdisciplinary. Um, mm -hmm. And how has that evolved throughout your career? Um, it was really challenging initially when you start off in a research program where there aren't a lot of existing methodologies to use, mm -hmm. um, you kind of have to be the pioneer and figure that out. And yeah. so that means you have some failed studies as you mm -hmm. test mm -hmm. and figure out what mm -hmm. works. But um, I actually drew for my tip of the tongue studies, I drew a methodology from a groundbreaking paper uh, Debbie and then one of my good friends, Lori James, did um, in 2000. They had actually presented this work um, in the mid-90s at a conference I was at. And I kept a copy of their poster because I thought it was so cool. And then when my students said, well, hey, let's do something with TOTs, I said, well, let's build on this. I'd seen this work a few years ago. And so basically the idea is we use what's called a priming methodology where you're subtly or unconsciously exposing people to information and then looking at the impact that has without them being aware that that's happening. So it's kind of like a secret. So in the tip of the tongue studies, what happens is you have general knowledge questions that you come up with and you ask people do you know the answer? Do you not know it? Are you having a tip of the tongue? Mm -hmm. And so um, a little bit of side trivia here. One of the best questions throughout my career that that used to be really good at inducing TEOTs, um, it can change. So if something starts getting more exposure in the media or the news, so tsunami used to be a really good word. Mm -hmm. And then when there was that big tsunami in Indonesia, it's not a good word anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, the best celebrity name that was a great TOT for so many years for me was Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, not kidding because right think about it he had enough of that sort of yeah you know celebrity exposure but then wasn't really doing that anymore and so there's this period of where he'd had familiarity so it made mm -hmm. it a good tot yeah no more no more sadly yeah. um, sadly and so you you test sadly. a lot of these <laughs> yeah sorry. exactly no. we, won't, we won't make political comments yeah sorry that sadly. was sadly but it is sadly that it <laughs> means that he's not obscure because that would that's right. the implication there yeah 
So you test a lot of these questions. Um, you have to stay on top of them over time. Um, but there's certain ones that are always good. Abacus is a great TOT word. Marsupial can be a great TOT word. Um, right? You can see things that yeah. you knew and just haven't yeah, really used use them. Enough enough. Yeah. Yes. And so then what we did in our studies then was you would get a question. And if you said you were having a TOT for it, we had you read a list of words and we made up some cover story like, oh, we're getting some data on um, people's subjective impressions of these words, like how easy it is it to pronounce, how familiar are you with this word? We made them rate them on various dimensions. It didn't matter what we did. But the point was we embedded in that list something we were studying. So in one study, the first study we did, we were interested in how the words phonology, the sounds of the words impacted your ability to resolve a TOT. So when you were having a TOT for abacus, in that list, we embedded a word that contained the first syllable, ab, mm -hmm. or we contained it that contained the middle syllable, mm -hmm. uh, or the last syllable, cuss. And then after you read that list of words, we were like, now we're going to go switch back to the general knowledge questions. And we gave them the TOT question again. Mm -hmm. And we looked at how now could they resolve the TOT as a function of yeah. which of the syllables they'd read. And we found that the initial syllable was critical for its retrieval. If you get another yeah. word that has that syllable, guess what? It helps you resolve that TOT more than um, any other type of phonological information in the word. So we've continued to use priming in a lot of different ways. Um, other ways, you know, other things you can embed in that list. You can look at what effect it has on people's ability to resolve the TOTs. Um, but to get at your point of the interdisciplinarity, I mean, we also then dig into literature. And we've had to look at other literatures, not just TOTs. Mm -hmm. We have to look at memory literature. You look at speech production literature. And now I'm looking at emotion literature, which is completely separate from all of these kinds of mm -hmm. language issues. Mm -hmm. So it's a good reminder that you get ideas for methodologies by looking at how they're studying related concepts. So this may not be a fair question because I know we're talking about research, not therapy here. Um, but that's a these are questions that involve that, that interest it, though. that interest a lot of us at my age. Um, so, do you have any advice for people that have grown out of what you've seen about TOTs and and memory and um, speech? I do. I mean, again. They're based on general patterns and data. So what works for any individual, right, can't right. necessarily extend. It's sort of what I say to students. What study strategy works for your friend might not work for you at all. But yeah. you don't know until you try and figure out what works with you. Mm -hmm. So I would say the three suggestions I would make, um, and actually a couple of them are aging specific. I mean, so for people as they age, um, mm -hmm. we've learned that they have different influences of what helps their resolution. So I'm going to give mm -hmm. you a couple age-specific recommendations, too. Mm -hmm. But in general, um, I think the first thing I would suggest is my research suggests the first letter by itself isn't helpful, which is counterintuitive because that's what a lot of us use mm -hmm. to try to start generating. Mm -hmm. yeah, when you're like, the it starts, it starts with, C, B, so then you start going, okay, C, and you start throwing out a lot of C words. <laughs> right. But I've found in my work, that letter isn't enough. You actually yeah. need the syllable unit. Mm. So instead, the yeah. strategy is add a vowel to you. If you know it begins with C, you start going ka and generating ka words or ka yeah. or ki or ka <laughs> or ko, at least. And maybe if you hit upon the first syllable, yeah, it could it, be a way of, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, instigating the resolution. Um, so <laughs> let go of that first letter strategy. Not useful. Um, the other I make is sort of a, a funny suggestion I make when I'm talking um, in older adult audiences. And that is research that we found is um, for younger people, so having this another phonologically related word um, can help resolution. Mm -hmm. um, but there's situations for older people where it actually can hurt resolution. Mm -hmm. And so what I say is don't be so helpful to your spouse. So when your spouse is struggling, 
And the natural reaction is to be like, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? <laughs> oh, yeah. And it turns out actually for, for older adults, that can be counterproductive in helping mm -hmm. them to resolve a TOT. So not helping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then some recent data I've published with some collaborators is we used an existing large-scale data set of people across a wide array of ages um, in Cambridge in England. And we dug into those data and we found a really interesting relationship between self-reported anxiety symptoms and having TOTs. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that for college-aged people, there wasn't a relationship. For middle-aged people, there was a positive relationship where the more anxiety symptoms people self-reported, actually the fewer TOTs they had. Hmm. Wow. But in old age, it was the opposite. The more mm -hmm. anxiety symptoms people reported, it was predictive of then having more TOTs. Mm -hmm. So to me, this suggests this age difference in the influence of these affective factors, in this case, anxiety. Um, and it was especially interesting because overall, older adults were actually less anxious than the other age mm -hmm. groups. So it's not that they were just overly anxious. No, in fact, yeah. overall, they're actually less anxious, but mm -hmm. their level of anxiety for whatever that was, was predictive of TOTs. So in terms of learning to manage potentially these affective factors, I mean, that's easier to to say than do. But obviously when you could introduce somebody and you have a TOT, a young person laughs it off, right? Mm -hmm. They like make a joke of it. Right. right. What do you do as an older adult is this dementia. Am yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> of course, honestly, I, my, I was about to say, there's nothing more anxiety producing than I, a TOT when, when you're my age. No, I mean, I'm sorry, even at my age, I just turned 50. And even at 50, I'm feeling that because that didn't used to feel that way when I had one. And so, but trying to remember these are a, such a part of normal aging. I mean, if you yeah. didn't have them, that would be weird. Right. So, I mean, the universality of the experience and so trying to find some ways mm -hmm. to, when you have that experience, um, to get that, that arousal under control. I mean, I don't know for certain that predicts it, but yeah. I just know from these data that there was these relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is it about cognition and aging that is, you find it so appealing to, to research and to study? Well, it's funny. I, I taught cognitive psychology for many years at mm -hmm. Florida. And almost every semester, a student would say at the end of the semester, wow, I really like this class. And I thought it was going to be boring. <laughs> and I immediately would think, how could studying the mind be boring? Like, what? Like, that comment after 20 years, still, I could never wrap my head around how that could It's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> but I just yeah. didn't get it. Like, what part would be uninteresting? I mean, where's the uninteresting piece? So I think that right there, I mean, just gives you some sense of, of my inkling of if I can't even understand how you couldn't find it interesting, uh, maybe it tells you why I find it interesting. But I think for me, what's been so wonderful about studying aging as part of that is there's mutual benefit. And one is by studying older adults, like we can learn potentially things that have, like Mark was saying, therapeutic possibility or ways that can help them offset some cognitive problems that they find really problematic. So it could have that application to it. And I mm -hmm. see in some ways the theoretical approach of my research can lead to that. Mm -hmm. But also they've been able to inform us about cognition more broadly. Right. Because what I learned from 20 year olds, when I then contrast it with what happens at 60, 70, 80, gives me a much more complete picture mm -hmm. of the, the mechanisms that underlie whatever the cognitive processes that I'm studying. So I feel like they're contributing to research, not only to help us understand them, but for us to understand others through them. It's a point of reference. For yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. for me, 
again, I feel like, how could that not be interesting? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, well, what's wrong with them? <laughs> I mean, what has more um, importance in our lives than our ability to think? Right. You know, I yes, mean, it's, um, exactly. I mean, it, do you find that um, that studying this feeds back into your own awareness of yourself and your own memory and speech? Absolutely. I mean, I especially feel that, again, as I have aged. Um, because, you know, I started, I was 27 when I started at Florida, um, and here I am 50. And so certainly having experienced just normal cognitive changes across that span of time. And so I even find myself already starting to do that. Wait, is this normal? <laughs> is this healthy? Those kinds of things. Um, but then again, trying to remind myself what I talk about in my work, you know, in my papers, but also then when I'm you know, communicating in public settings, remembering those sort of reassurances that I'm giving them, <laughs> I try yeah. to remember them for myself mm -hmm. as well. But it's, it's, it's scary when, for example, I've had friends and colleagues that then ended up getting Alzheimer's and dementia and then watching them go through that, the smartest people I knew, the people who were so, you know, intellectually creative mm -hmm. and sharp. And so it's hard to not have that also in the back of my mind that, yeah, I know I think what I'm experiencing is healthy, but then I'm sure they all felt that way too. And then it right. turned out it wasn't. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of reflection, I think, that goes into that from my work. What are some research projects you're working on now or some future ideas that you would want to work on? Well, part of the excitement of coming here was reinvigorating my research. Mm -hmm. Like I said, having been chair of a department in that administrative role, I was sort of less and less connected to that. But then being able to come here, I can start over and do whatever I want. I mean, there's no precedent. So um, in terms of what I'm doing currently, I have six undergraduate students who are research assistants in my lab. And so I'm loving teaching them about the research process. And it's also that challenge because for 20 years I had grad students intervening and doing that role. So it's been a really great experience for me to realize how do I teach about research um, to this population in this way that excites them about it, but also makes them cognizant of there's all so many facets that go into research. Not all of it is fascinating and fun right. and giving them that whole broad perspective. So what I did then when they started with me, it was last January, um, I'd pulled a number, I have a number of existing completed studies that I could never have time to get to the data. Mm. So I pulled out one of those. It's a 15-year-old study now, and it's a wonderful study. And I just kick myself because it's, it's, it's really fascinating, and I have no time to look at this data in 15 years. And so what I did, though, was for them, I had them actually run through the experiment so they could see what a participant did, so they'd understand looking at the data better. And then I made them... Um, come up with a hypothesis of something they thought we should test in those data. Mm -hmm. And so they had to go into the literature, they had to look things up, and then we submitted conference abstracts, and now four of them are going to present their hypotheses and results at a conference in Atlanta in April. Nice. Oh, wow. So super exciting. So anyway, the point of that study, though, what we did initially was, um, it wasn't actually originally designed as a TOT study, it was a collaboration with somebody else. But it could be a TOT study, as it turned out. And so we gave people general knowledge questions. But then what we were interested in was, well, when you then have a TOT and you now get the right answer, um, does the way that you get the right answer influence your later um, retention of that information? So we gave people either a multiple mm -hmm. choice test 
where you'd then have to pick out the answer among, I think, five alternatives. Or we gave a letter-by-letter -letter completion test. You'd get one letter at a time. If you didn't know it, you could get another letter, and then you could get another letter until you had enough information and could retrieve it. And so we were curious to see then, does that format of getting the correct answer when you've been in a TOT then influence, then 15 minutes later, are you able to retrieve that word again? Mm -hmm. And then a week later, we brought people back and said, mm -hmm. are you able to still get these words? Uh, yeah. And then we had younger and older adults in the study. So it's just this nice. rich data set of lots of different variables. And then my students were interested in, well, what if you pick the wrong answer on the multiple choice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We gave them feedback afterward that mm -hmm. even no matter what you picked, it was you were told the this correct is the answer. answer is marsupial. Mm -hmm. But does actually then you generating what you remember. think? Yeah. Does that make them remember? Does that, yeah. Do you so, remember what you picked instead of what you were told? Instead was the of what answer? you were told. So anyway, uh, I'll let you know. Yeah. We are going to analyze those data for the April conference and then I'll know the answer. So we started off on that so they could get into a project right away. Mm -hmm. And then after they were doing that, we started a new study, which was a follow-up to a recent experiment I'd completed where we were interested. I mentioned sort of these emotional affect factors and trying to figure out what effect they might have on TOTs. So we did this study where I was trying to figure out, well, how do we measure emotional arousal? And I've tried a couple of different things. I tried showing people um, emotionally arousing pictures. Um, there were some problems with that methodology, but try and get people to be aroused by something in a way, in a laboratory. So what we've been doing in these recent studies is we have you say bad words out loud. <laughs> in front of the experimenter. <laughs> <laughs> so in the study, what we did was we um, did the general knowledge question. You had a TOT, and then you either had to say a neutral word uh -huh. or a bad word. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on the radio, um, but like the F word and some other words. And then we had them rated on a couple dimensions, like how taboo do you find this? Um, how easy is this pronounced? And then you get the TOT question again, and we're looking at seeing whether you know the emotional arousal of that intervening word affects whether or not you resolve the TOT. Mm -hmm. So they were involved with um, collecting the data, so testing the participants, coding and organizing the data, and now we're in the process of getting into moving that to analysis as well. So current things in terms of future, um, one of the things I negotiated when I came was to get an eye tracker. Mm. Never used an eye tracker. <laughs> and there's very mm -hmm. little research on eye tracking in speech production. Mm -hmm. um, because often you can imagine we're not actually looking yeah. at things. But I think there's some creative ways you could devise um, some projects yeah. that would involve people having to look at things. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I'm in the process with a new colleague in my department because she also does eye tracking. So we're in the process of figuring out which eye tracker to get. Uh -huh. And then I'm thinking we could do things like that Moses Illusion study and then look at where people are looking like mm -hmm. how how much are they looking at Moses? Um, I mean, <laughs> at Moses, or, you know, yeah, uh -huh. Moses. and then does right. that tell us anything about their susceptibility illusion? So I know I haven't really fleshed out these eye tracking studies yet, but it's definitely a fun and exciting new direction. I I think my students are going to be really interested in pursuing. So I think um, I have yet to find a faculty member who doesn't think that research is important for for, for students. So I'm not going to ask you that, um, but why is it important and what kinds of of research work is it that that is important for students i mean I, I i mean i can imagine certain kinds of busy work that might not actually be very very positive but what makes it important for students my approach has always been that you want to give students the all-around experience of research so the good with the bad <laughs> so to speak mm -hmm. so i know at florida for example you know some people did re 
research with students where they had them just do one piece. You're just going to code videotapes. You're just going to help with this piece. And that's just not my philosophy. I feel mm -hmm. like you have to see everything. The problem yeah. is, though, that your projects are often at different stages. So and a student doesn't necessarily stay around for the length right. of time right. to see all the aspects. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why I try to have them engaged in multiple projects mm -hmm. because then you can have them at this stage in one project, at this stage in a different project. Mm -hmm. And so it's still not perfect. And again, if they leave your lab after two semesters, you can't give them everything. But for the students who want to stay on long-term, that's sort of the plan. And so why I think it's important is in a lot of the same ways for what we're doing in the classroom. We're trying to encourage students to think critically um, about new ideas, to analyze new incoming information, to synthesize with what you already know, to make predictions. And research does all those things, right? So by having them come up with a hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. Here I just mm -hmm. found a way then to get them thinking about existing literature and then figuring out with the data that we had, what's something that they could test and why was their hypothesis grounded in existing literature? They had to do that. They had mm -hmm. to, couldn't just say, I want to test this. They had to come up with a reason why we should test it and why we might expect what we found. And so, yeah, even coding data, which can be kind of tedious, mm -hmm. but we need to code data. And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example in the tip of the tongue world, is so when people um, have a TOT or they know the answer, or they're typing the responses into the computer. Are people perfect spellers? No. <laughs> so then if you want to have a computer be able to compute, was this a correct answer or not a correct answer? The right. computer then is going to count and misspelling is the wrong answer, even if it's functionally the right word. So the students go through then and recode all those answers then in terms of their correct spelling. And then we can use a computer macro to do the comparisons and save time that way. So when mm -hmm. I put it in the context of saving time, I said, you could either be hand calculating, you know, whether this is correct each time, or you can do this coding. They then see the benefit of doing it in the coding way. Um, so I feel like we're teaching a, a skill set that has in research that has a broad applicability no matter what you go on to do. You mm -hmm. don't have to go on and be a researcher. You can go on and do anything. You still have to learn how to critically think, develop hypotheses, solve problems from different perspectives. You can't tell your boss, Sorry, I don't have any ideas. <laughs> and so I feel like in research, we're teaching those skills that apply to just a broad array of, of problems you'll troubleshoot no matter what your career is. <laughs> I mean, am I right? Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. What do you think? <laughs> um, and I mean, you just, you have to be able to, you can try approaching a problem from one perspective, but if that doesn't work, you got to now think out of that box. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we've been talking with Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science, Lisa Abrams. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you so much. It was a lot Thank of fun. Thank you. That was great. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.